I've kept saying the words damn white supremacy in just about every Facebook post because I feel like that's all I can really say at this point. I loathe that our pursuit of truth has transformed into believing we, our ways, and our ideas are the way, the truth, and the life over against all others instead of recognizing the way, the truth, and the life in a brown-skinned Jewish anti-empire crucified servant carpenter. heard was an excerpt of Tyler Nyland's poetic essay on white supremacy. If you want to hear the rest, stick around for the rest of this episode. This is the Methinks podcast, where we talk about anything ranging from ethics, justice, sexuality, and history from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. My name is Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy. I'm Maggie, and I study American history with a religious focus. In this episode, we talk with Pastor Tyler Nyland about learning from black churches. Often, white churches have a tendency to set the agenda on race issues, to talk about race issues from a distance, and to push race conversations off to Diversity Sunday. But real growth in the area of racial reconciliation requires that white churches learn from black churches, that white people come under black influence and leadership. In addition to thinking through this matter, we chat with Tyler about how race issues have impacted us personally. Tyler is an associate pastor at a multicultural church in Madison, Wisconsin called Fountain of Life. He's also a staff member with Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership, also based out of Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. I think a lot of time when we are in places and we're kind of theorizing without um, context when we're theorizing without people next to us who can check us, who, who maybe even in authority, um, can check us on things. It's, it it can be potentially very dangerous. Um, the reason I say that is there's a reason why Dr. Ra told me I needed a black mentor to pursue this work, um, is because I need someone who is close enough to me, who will check me when I'm off because otherwise it's way too easy for us as white individuals to think, okay, now we get it. So now we're good. And for continually forget, even though we say the right rhetoric about that, this is a journey to forget how big of a journey it is and how much we really have to continue to pursue and, and how, how we can become lazy with it. And we can, we can assume where we're, we're, we're somewhere that we're not. Um, That was actually one of the reasons when I almost, like I said, my failure uh, about not coming to Madison, there was a point where I was like, I got caught up in some personal reasons why I wanted to stay in Chicago. And so I said, you know, I actually was like, you know, I'm not going to move to Madison anymore. I'm not going to come serve at Fountain of Life. Um, I'm going to actually work at this probably white church. And because I, you know, I think I can have a better impact there about impacting racism. And it just got brought out to me, while certainly that might be true, I still had no context or proximity to anyone who would check me. While I might think that I was in a in a good spot or I might think that I was helping, I might be perpetuating some of the worst things that typically Madison, liberal, uh, we think we're, we know everything. 
um, has caused us to have the worst racial disparity in the U.S. because we think we know everything. And then we haven't given over actual authority or power or we haven't been in submission to people of color and um, in that way. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why I work at Fountain of Life. And I really believe, especially for, especially for issues of race, for white people to not just um, passively serve underneath or learn from, but to pursue places where we have to have black mentors and not just by tokenizing and finding the first black person you can say and saying, will you be my mentor? But, but by submitting to and serving underneath and letting them tell me what to do and check me on what I have going on, it changes the game and it helps you to actually, um, uh, I don't know. It, it just, it just is transformative in that way. So that's really insightful. Yeah. Tyler, I have a question. How, what, what do you recommend to someone who wants to put these like checks and balances in their life, wants to find a mentor who could like check them, um, when it comes to, to justice issues, but maybe they're just not in a position where they know anyone like that. They don't have any relationships or friendships like that. Is there an alternative that can serve a similar function? Maybe not as successful as a function, but similar function. You know, I think there's certain pieces that we can do. Like um, Dr. G always talks about right now, what, a, what does an ally do, especially in these situations with racial justice? And he talks about educate, um, donate, and affiliate. So there's those pieces where you can educate yourself. You can, you can, um, the Black Like Me podcast, I'll always plug it. I mean, you could, you could do the, uh, you could do the education piece. Just Fed Anger's Black History course has a lot of that. And, uh, you can, you can educate from afar, reading books and working through those things. You can, you can donate, um, and support black led movements and black led organizations and really, you know, put your investment, put actual stake in the game and be willing to let, um, let your funds and resources be um, given um, to support those organizations, or you can affiliate and you can show up at different places. You can, you can promote, but you can show up when you're, when organizations or places are called on. However, um, I do think, and I don't know how transferable this is for every racial justice issue issue, but I do think there is something to the fact there's something to the reality of being in some sort of relationship. But that relationship isn't by trying to find the easiest way for you. It's by you going to places and not making the work be the other person's work to do. If you want to learn from them, you kind of have to go where they are and earn trust and credibility in a sense that um, it's not about you, that it's not just about you taking, but you become a part of community that's I mean that's where that's why I work where I work because um I knew I felt that I couldn't accurately pursue the kingdom of God and especially in relation to racial justice staying in the context that I was in I felt that I had to be surrounded and immersed in a different cultural context and that um my I wanted my ministry formation to be shaped in a black Pentecostal church and so um yeah, and sometimes you 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 have to fit what those is. Like I said, I had to fundraise for a little bit, um, or I had to work at Starbucks for a little bit, and I fundraise, and I fit the context of what the models was. I didn't. I had just come out of seminary, and I didn't preach for almost a a year, year and a half. I was doing really um, roles 
that were that at first appeared to me like, oh man, I should be. Don't you remember? I know how to preach. I have a master's of divinity, and you know, and I got this the 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 Greek award. I got all this stuff, and it's like, no, nope, you're gonna hand out flyers for a year, and you're gonna learn how to love our people, because that's more important than you practicing some theological peace on people. So let me ask you a question. I think that one of the things that's a barrier to those kind of practices for a lot of people in my situation is that, okay, if I know I walk into that context, I'm going to disagree potentially politically, most likely theologically. I'm going to be uncomfortable with the style of worship. Um, I'm not going to have a a connection really with people. Um, And so how can I even walk into that feeling as if I'm not an intruder? Yeah. I think it's really good. Um, we had someone who felt the least like they belonged in the entire world. Um, someone I love so dearly. She's um, she went through our Black History course, and she ended up. Uh, she's a white lifelong atheist. She went through our Black History course, and she discovered in that Black History course that she she couldn't put a name to it. She didn't know what was going on, but she sensed something in the presence of like the church where we hold it and all that. And she just wasn't sure what to do. Um, And she walked in and she has no religious background at all. She hated God growing up. She literally hated him and, and the idea of, of God and this whole Holy spirit thing. Like that's the most bizarre wacko thing in the world. Um, But she sensed that there was something there that she needed. Um, Pastor G always invites people. He says, if you really care and you want to know, you want to meet black people in Madison right now, show up at church on Sunday morning. That's where we are. Um, And so he'll invite people all the time and some people take him up on it. But this individual came and she walked in the doors and she actually like, she looked so nervous and she just was like kind of creeping in. And I was like, Hey, how, how are you? And she was just like, um, am I okay to be here? She, she literally asked the question. Um, because, for us, there's a lot of worries about, am I in, encroaching on black space? Am I, am I showing up in a place that I'm not wanted or necessary or anything like that? Um, and I was like, of course, what, why not? She's like, well, she, she, she mentioned those things. And then she looks in the sanctuary and she was like, I think you guys are having a big celebration today. I don't think I belong. And I looked in and it was just the choir in their robes getting it. <laughs> it was just, it was just a typical Sunday morning. And, uh, and, and, uh, I mean, at Fountain Life, you never know when the flags are going to start flying. You never go and someone yes. might take off around the running around the room. You never know. Uh, and so it's different. And so it is different. Um, but uh, <laughs> so she walked in and she ended up staying for the whole service. And it was something completely foreign to her, which came to the prayer wall afterward. And she said, I don't know what this is. And I don't feel like I belong here. But I think I think God is real and I'm trying to figure out how to go with it you know and so I guess it's it's if something's pulling you towards um solidarity in a way that you really want to pursue sometimes even if you might disagree on certain practices it's okay to still show up and stand in solidarity even if you disagree I mean I don't I don't speak in tongues I don't I don't do healings I don't I sometimes I struggle because I don't necessarily connect with the worship style there at all, but I'm not there for the worship style. Um, 
I'm there for the connection with God and to, to learn what it means to serve in a primarily black community as a white male, um, and to, to, to lay that down. So sorry for going on a little no, it's a good answer. extra there. That was, uh, that was, that was super interesting. And, and, and I want to clarify, um, in my piece, I don't think every white person needs to go to a black church. That's not what I'm saying. When I say that, it's not, it's not that, um, because, uh, yeah, if everybody went to black, the, our black churches might be a little frustrated with it and be like, okay, now we really don't have a space. Um, but, but what I mean by that is, um, you know, there's been churches who have really practiced this well ever since then they've come to F to like, to, to Nehemiah as an organization. And they've said, how can we partner with you? And they've listened and they haven't come with their own agendas and trying to get themselves um, uh, validated. They just come and they say, how can we donate? How can we affiliate? How can we partner? How can we educate? And literally just sort of receive. And because of that, we're able to build good partnerships. And then they are able to listen to what we have to say uh, as an organization now. Again, our organization head being black and our organization as a whole being black. I'm just a white individual who works there. But um, yeah, so being able to listen to a black-led organization put the emphasis is huge versus other white churches who've come and they've sort of said, hey, take a look at all the things that we've either said or written or this article I like or this. Can you validate it? And they haven't said, can you validate it? But essentially that's it. And it's like, this is, I, you're already you've already determined what you, you want in your head. It's, it's hard to be able to reason with that. Um, and so I really believe that within this context, the white churches have some of the strongest potential to impact this issue out of any church, out of any place right now, because they're the ones who are letting they and myself included, we as, as a white evangelical myself are letting our children and our individuals who are in our churches and pews get away without ever being confronted on this daily, unless there's a massive issue or if we decide it's diversity Sunday. If we, if that's not the case, we do not have regular scheduled places. We don't have the talk as white and white families with our children. We don't have the talk that talks about racism and talks about the, the history of our nation. We just let that slide. And what people are met with, I talked with a white friend of mine who, um, she said that her 10-year-old son this um, two weeks ago, she was talking with him and she actually had the talk, which I was so blown away by because um, she, she, she sat her kids down after this and said, we need to talk about racism. It's awesome. But after she got finished talking about racism, her son looked up at her at, at 10 and said, but mom, all the black people are just bad and, and criminals. And she said, what? She was so upset. She's like, how could you possibly ever say it? We've never taught you anything like that. And he just said, oh, that's all they are all on TV. That's just who, that's, that's, that's what black people are. And she was livid. And she's like, but what about your, 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 your teammate or your coach? And he said, oh, well, I know them. They're fine. But so it's already implementing this idea in 10 year olds. Criminalizing. Criminalizing. Just all of this. Like, this is what our society does. Um, And unless, if she hadn't done that, her 10 year old grows up with that perspective and can't, she's not aware that she has to work on that. That's the sort of stuff that in this time um, we can do. I'm curious, can I turn the tables on you for a second? 
Is that you referring to Maggie and I? Both of you, yeah. Yes. I'd be I'd be curious to hear how um I don't know what you've been processing or how it's been how this has been for you, especially in the past month or so with the state of our nation and especially with racial injustice pieces and just how that's feeling. And I mean, after George Floyd and today we just had in Madison, we had a young black woman who uh, was called the N word and had lighter fluid thrown on her and was lit on fire. I mean, like in Madison. And so I don't know. I'm just curious. I'd love to hear more about how you two are processing or feeling or thinking through it yourselves. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think for me, processing all the the things that have been happening, starting with, you know, Arbery, I think more than anything, there has been a real sense that I just need to, I need to listen well, and then I need to lament I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've been learning recently is the importance of lament. Um, again, because I think my tendency has to, has been to think about these issues from a very theoretical vantage point, which is needed. We need to do theorizing on oppression, on injustice, on racism, on sexism. It's 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 very important. But there is such a thing as the ivory tower of of academia, and that ivory tower tower is very insulated the lived experiences of people who are actually experiencing the oppression that we're theorizing about. Mm. And so what's been happening recently has um, opened up a new door of information that isn't theoretical. It's experiential. I'm seeing, I'm seeing it. I'm hearing it. um, Even just having conversations with um, black friends of mine, just hearing about their stories. Like it's, it's been, it's been crushing my soul in good and bad ways. Um, And I just need, I need to hear it. And so that, that invitation to lament has has been something I've, I've not yet f- experienced until now. And so just like, yeah, I mean, I, I, and this is, this is something I feel, I feel comfortable sharing in this space. Yeah. I would never want to center my emotional experience um, in context where others need to have their emotional experiences centered because they're the oppressed people. So, so, I mean, I, I I've had multiple nights in the past few weeks where I've, I've just like mourned like uh-huh. my own idleness mourned like with with serious like yeah serious grief my own uh, ignorance and uh-huh. the way that the black community has been treated um, that's something I welcome and I, I've invited it um, well it's been thrust on me in some ways but in other ways I've totally wanted it and I, I've, I've needed it so that's been a big part of my, the way I've processed all this is just learning to lament and grieve and just sit in that uncomfortable space So I think one of the things that makes it more of a a practical concern in some ways for me is that uh, this summer I'm teaching a culture wars class. I teach it. This is the third time I've taught it. Um, And I have one of my last units is actually on the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, And so this all like blew up right as I was publishing my class for the summer. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to like revise the materials that I have them read um, or have them watch. And one of the things that I actually had them watch because it's on religion and the culture wars. Um, I had them read something um, that was a reaction from a Catholic priest. And then I have them watch Jamar Tisby's presentation, The Heart Cry Behind the Black Lives Matters Movement. And the reason I did that is I said, I want you to see kind of an atypical evangelical reaction uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, that to me was a a very um, 
meaningful talk that he gave um, that I watched, and you can find it online. And it was, I think, before he even had his podcast or had published his book that he gave this presentation. Um, but for me, I'm because I teach about culture wars, um, and I will always kind of frame things, I think, in that kind of historical way, I am always so cautious about getting pulled to one polar side or the other because I think that my center has to be the gospel. And so relating to what's happening with that kind of perspective of how should we as believers react and the fact that that young woman was treated that way is just abhorrent. I mean, it's just, it's awful. And what about our city has like grown that made that in any way something that it would even occur in the mind of someone right that this is something I can do and get away with right um and I I think about that with um George Floyd I mean watching that video I I think too with the, the Ahmed Arbery case watching these is the first time that it's so clear like, even if you can justify through whatever, you know, arguments you want to make, oh, they knew each other beforehand, all these sorts of things, this is really the first time that so many of those excuses fall so short that I think there's kind of a reckoning of, okay, what could have been the other ways to interpret all these other cases, all these other names that people are showing on signs and things like that? And for me, um, I too often have let the far polarized reaction justify my non-reaction and so that's so interesting and I think that's what so for example what happened in Madison a couple of nights ago where they tore down the forward statue and a you know union um you know statue instead of the confederate statues right as as a historian I'm just like oh my goodness no like that's not the point um I can and I do I I teach about why the confederate statues are historically so racist um it's not history it's it's specifically meant to perpetuate racism and racial hierarchy um but for me like immediately i want to be like well that just you know nullifies like what i can say about the statues now because you've taken it too far you know and i think i have to be so careful about not letting that justification slip into my reaction because i so quickly go there um yeah so that's where i'm at right now so I wrote something in response to this um, because it was what happened. It, I actually wrote it right after the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery, and I think it still um, feels relevant. to it. it's, it's sort of what I've, I've kept saying the words damn white supremacy in just about every Facebook post because I feel like that's all I can really say at this point. But I wrote a poetic essay. Um just came to me over a few days. And so this is, this is sort of how I've been feeling. Um, and in light of this, especially in light of the conversation of talking with our people and how do we handle conversations? Well, um, this, I think it makes sense. So it says this, I love white people. And for that reason, I say this damn white supremacy, damn it to hell. I love white people. I love our propensity for flannel, our relishing in fall weather, our joy over apple orchards, and our attraction to guitar and piano and all things music. And for that reason, 
I grieve that we, like Esau, sold our birthright of ethnicity to a deceiver known as white supremacy so that we might accept a racial status that gives us temporary privileges at the expense of knowing who we are as a people and identifying with where we come from. I love white people. I love our awkward half smiles when we walk by each other and want to say hi. Our love of dogs, our nature vibes, and that we can't dance or stay on beat, but still love to try anyways. And for that reason, I'm broken that we've created a culture where whites who struggle in very real class issues and battles find their solution is to deny racism, to ridicule and invalidate people of color in order to feel like they have value and are heard themselves. I love white people. I love that we clamor over our favorite coffee shops and coffee brewing methods. We value politeness and courteousness in our mannerisms, and, and we lose our minds when Mr. Brightsider don't stop believing hit our eardrums. Therefore, I lament a society we've set up that allows white men to believe that they have the authority to hunt down, terrorize, and shoot a black man jogging because they determined it was within their power, and white women to rob and use the words, experiences, and pain of women of color to make it a profit off a book sale, a social media post, or a nonprofit grant. I love white people. I love that we pursue truth, seek to be right, and desire to fix what is broken. But I loathe that our pursuit of truth has transformed into believing we, our ways, and our ideas are the way, the truth, and the life over against all others instead of recognizing the way, the truth, and the life in a brown-skinned Jewish anti-empire crucified servant carpenter. I love white people. I love our literature. I love our love of literature, fine arts, and vintage indie and country Americana. And for this reason, I hate that we always try and find ways that we are the exception to being complicit or active in white supremacy, that we cannot retell and repent of our history and story, owning the evil and atrocities that work their way into every sector of society of which we still reap the benefits. I love white people. I love our embrace of the church calendar, our craving. Sorry, it disappeared for a second. You can edit that out. Where is it? Of our embrace of the church calendar, our craving of water and fire imagery in our worship songs. And yes, I do mean oceans. And our desire to value and uphold God's word. Therefore, I'm disturbed and devastated at the heritage of the church of Jesus Christ that validated and funded the economic system of slavery that violated the word of God and its twisting of truth into evil against God's beloved black and brown sons and daughters that has led people away from the love of Jesus by its bloodied, soiled, corrupt, exclusionary systems and promotion of a white Jesus, that we continue to be a place in our society that can cannot give up power to our brothers and sisters of color unless they align with whiteness. I love white people. I love the individuals I know and love who make me strong and who raised me into the man I am. And that's why I hate supremacy. For in the awakening in my spirit and soul to its power, it causes constant spirals or questioning of self, motives, and morality of what it is to be and exist as white, resulting that I look at my race with shame and friction rather than with embrace and pride at the stories and history of my people. I love white people. I love the body and mind God has given me and that I'm created in his image. For that reason, I hate that this image has been infiltrated and inundated constantly with racism, and that I, being made in God's image, have been complicit and participatory in the system of white supremacy as it attacks others, 
made equally in the image of God, yet with a different skin tone. White supremacy has created all of this, and it's killing the souls of the white people I love so much, while it kills the bodies of black and brown brothers and sisters I love so much. I love white people. For that very reason I say, damn white supremacy. Damn it to hell. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Instagram for more conversations and opportunities to engage. See you next time.